the Fire Within Podcast. You need a sustainable plan, the right mindset, and the knowledge and inspiration to stoke the fire within. Just like the Phoenix, you can burn your old habits, never turn back, and emerge completely anew. There are no shortcuts. Welcome, Fire Within community. This is the Fire Within Podcast, where we talk about all things health, fitness, and nutrition related. I'm your host, Brandon, with my co-host, Joe. Hello. I thought you might ask me how I was doing, then I was going to go, wellness. We have with us a mindfulness coach named Sarah Vallelie. She's the lead instructor, coach, and founder of TSD Mindfulness Meditation Center. She's been teaching mindfulness and meditation for 20 years in Los Angeles, Atlanta, and Asheville, where she currently resides, which is in North Carolina. Students from across the globe travel to attend her workshops and retreats and participate online. Sarah Vallelie has written four books, including Sensational Meditation for Children and Tame Soothe Dwell. She's been certifying others to teach meditation and mindfulness since 2001, and her teaching style and content is highly acclaimed by yoga instructors, therapists, and healing practitioners. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Brandon. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, I appreciate you joining us. So tell us in your own words a little bit about who you are, what you do. I'm a mindfulness coach, and I also teach mindfulness classes, and I certify people to be mindfulness coaches and mindfulness teachers. I teach a lot of traditional mindfulness techniques. My background is in insight meditation, but I also incorporate some additional techniques that specifically address fight or flight, uh, the activation of the sympathetic nervous system. Awesome. I appreciate that. You work with people all over the place. So you work with people through Zoom and things like that. And, and now currently you're in Asheville. So how did you used to live in Los Angeles and end up in, in Asheville or how does that work? I started out, it was, I think 21 years ago, I was a school teacher and I was also learning meditation. And it occurred to me one day to teach meditation to children. And back then that was not a thing and nobody was doing it. And so I was teaching at some community centers and people were coming to my classes who didn't even have children. They were just so fascinated by the idea of teaching meditation to children. And so when that started to happen, I realized that there was a real need for people to learn how to teach meditation to children. So I started a course and I was one of the only people in the English speaking world that was teaching people how to teach meditation to children. So I was attracting people from all over the world. And so I, I got lucky, really. Yeah. I published a book that was very well received. And so I did that for 15 years. And then it's been the last five years that I've shifted gears and I'm now just teaching adults and I'm just training adults to teach other adults. Tell us some of the benefits of teaching this to children. How does it impact them? And uh, I'd also be interested, would socioeconomic background challenges be helped to level the playing field with mindfulness practice? The biggest benefit from a child learning mindfulness is the social emotional benefit. So the research really shows that children, students in schools are interacting in more healthy ways with one another when they are learning mindfulness at school. So that's, I think, can be really, really helpful for that leveling the playing field for sure. There are academic benefits as well with of kids who are struggling with concentration and things like that. But the research shows that the higher benefits are the social emotional. Yeah. 
And that could be huge. I, I taught middle and high school, and especially when they start to think that everybody's looking at them and they constantly feel like they're the center of att- attention and under a lot of the stress and pressure. So maybe this can help redirect their thoughts and perceptions during that awkward stage. And because I know depression and even suicide rates, especially post-pandemic, are really high. Can you give us an example of what types of techniques you would be teaching to the children and how they would apply it to their situations? Back then I was doing both guided imagery and mindfulness. And the guided imagery was really well received by children. They just love being led through these uh, fantasy experiences where they are guided to, for example, sit under a tree and notice the sounds of the tree, even though this is just a guided imagery experience. You can ring a singing bowl that rings and you can ask the children to listen very carefully with their eyes closed and raise their hand when they notice the sound of the singing bowl disappear. You really need to be so careful and so listening to those subtleties to notice that. So that's a really wonderful practice for the kids. Also noticing subtleties such as, can you feel the air on your face? Anything that you can challenge the students that is not in their normal (laughs) everyday life, what can you notice? Also simple things like putting up a photo that has a lot of different things going on in the photo and putting it up for maybe 20 seconds and then taking it away and asking the kids, what did you notice? What can, how many different colors did you notice in that photo or different details? Things like that, that the students really enjoy. And it it helps, it helps them with their concentration. It helps them with their, um, with their ability to just be in this world and be productive and and happy. Yeah. So that whole the idea of being present and shutting off all the internal chatter so that they can uh, take in more information as to what's in front of them. No, that makes a lot of sense. One of the things I love about your approach is you're extremely data-driven. Can you share just some changes you've seen either with children or in other areas of your practice uh, showing the improvement in different categories? Can you highlight some of those and what people could expect from implementing some of these mindfulness practices? Yeah, Sure. So I, like you, I was also a teacher and I was a math teacher. So this is what happens when a math teacher (laughs) becomes a mindfulness coach. So I have assessments that I give my clients and my students. And one is fairly long, it's 10 pages. And there are nine questions that go with each category. And the categories are, for example, distraction, feeling self-blame, anger, feeling fearful, uh, feeling abandonment, feeling pain, all these different categories. And my students my and my clients, they on average show a 30% increase after about four sessions overall in all of these categories. And the categories that they show the highest improvement, even more than 30% are the attention that's uh, the mindfulness techniques that I teach really help people feel more more focused. And another would be self-blame, decreasing those bouts of self-devaluing, moving more into the self-compassion, self-compassionate thinking, and frustration and anger, those type of emotions are decreased. Feelings of anxiety, stress, feeling at risk, feeling fear of failure, those are definitely decreased. 
And so we do trauma healing. And when we do trauma healing, then those emotions of grief, those emotions of loss, feelings of abandonment, rejection, feeling misunderstood, those drop as well. That's awesome. The research does show that mindfulness decreases symptoms associated with ADHD. Uh, and also medications will, will reduce symptoms of ADHD. The research actually shows that the combination of medication and mindfulness actually reduce your symptoms of ADHD even more than either one on its own. Oh, wow. So I think that's fascinating. Yeah. So in addition to just medicating, they can also start learning coping skills to get better and better at, at these issues. If someone's already taking medication for ADHD, it's just going to help you to learn a mindfulness practice on top of that. I read an interesting article in the New York Times not too long ago about the, it was interesting, it was also sad, it was about young people and their hopelessness going up to record highs. I think it was like 40 something percent of high schoolers feel hopeless. And they cited some things that they thought were contributing factors in there. The biggest contributing factor they thought was social media followed by the uh, pandemic. And I was curious from your perspective, because I feel like social media can be like anti-mindfulness. It's, it's the, it feels like the exact opposite of a meditation practice when you get sucked into the TikTok algorithm. Do you think there's a connection there or is it, or do you believe that maybe mindfulness is a part of that? solution to help us get back from these record highs that young people are experiencing? Social media is a distraction. So whatever it is, pick your poison. So it, it, it does distract you from the present moment. And a lot of us don't want to be in the present moment because maybe we're having some pain, maybe we're having some difficulty, maybe we're having some boredom. And those practices pull us away from that. But really, what we need to do is take a break, refocus into the present moment and sit with ourselves and accept ourselves where we're at and begin to really love each, love ourselves for where we're at. Love ourselves because we're in pain. If we're in pain, that's because we are a sensitive person that, that wants to have connection with others. And so that's what a mindfulness practice can do is to bring you into that space. And then what happens is it starts to spill out towards your connections with others because you're being more aware and compassionate of your own experience. And so then you, in turn, have empathy for other people. You really can understand what, what they're feeling. You can be a, a really wonderful partner and a wonderful friend. And it just adds to your own gratitude and joy in your own life. Yeah. Now, have you had any pushback from parents or communities or anything about implementing these practices? Because I know for some of my older clients, this is probably five years ago, if I would mention any kind of mindfulness practices, meditations, uh, I, their literal words would be, uh, I don't participate in any of that new age crap. I think the biggest pushback was religious. Mindfulness does stem from Buddhism. And I, I totally respect that pushback. I actually, I consulted with schools, but I didn't actually necessarily teach much mindfulness in schools myself. But my preference was to have children come to me. So their parents signed them up to yeah. come to me. I just felt better about that dynamic. Yeah. Because I think it's in incredibly valuable. And I think people are starting to realize that now. Even by myself, I've told this story on the show a couple of times. I had a college professor. He wanted me to meditate. And I threw the religion credit. I'm Christian. I don't, I won't do that. And he says, just listen to this note. And he played one note on the piano and I was so close to that. Now, of course, I realize now I was an idiot, but because the, the value is tremendous and you can still have whatever 
religion or beliefs you have and still practice mindfulness without them being in conflict. But I just think sometimes there's a little bit of that social stigma around it. And, and I hope to break some of that down over. If you're taking a mindfulness class, the teacher is telling you what to do with your consciousness, right? And so on a grand level, that's great because when we learn what to do with our consciousness in a certain way, then we're, we're happier people. But that's where it conflicts with Christianity because Christianity is also teaching you what to do with your consciousness. So there is a conflict. I now, yeah, I think there's some yeah. middle ground there where I would hope that anybody can see that to, to some degree there's enough benefit to where it's not going to cause any issues. I see that. And I actually had lunch with a Baptist minister a couple of months ago, and I convinced him to teach mindfulness to his congregation. So he oh, saw, saw the overlap. What I explained to him was the churches, what their biggest challenge right now is people are getting distracted, pulling away from, from the teachings. And I said, mindfulness is what you know, brings them back, brings them back to this pleasant moment, and brings them back to what's important. And he, he really bought into that. And now he's teaching his Baptist congregation mindfulness. That's pretty interesting. Now, I want to change gears a little bit. I had the opportunity to do a really cool assessment tool with you. That's one of the tools you helped to figure out what types of things clients would benefit the most from and where they'd get them. Where should they be focusing their intention to improve? And I thought it'd be really cool if we went through that assessment, explained it. I could do it live on the show with Joe here, which I think he already has his answers written down. So tell us a little bit about that assessment, how it's used. So it's a 15 question assessment. And I use this assessment during my free consultations. So when people are trying to decide whether they want to become a coaching client might or not. So I give them an assessment and I can give them specific feedback of how I can help them using mindfulness to improve their life. So there's 15 questions. The first five questions are directed to our mental processing or thought cycles. It helps me get an idea of what type of thoughts like cycles are actually creating more stress in their life. We all have these things going on that cause it stress, but if we're in this certain type of thought cycle, such as rumination and worry and something called cognitive elaboration, which is when we're filling in missing information with our own background knowledge, and it's often catastrophic thinking. So I can get a sense for how much someone is relying on that type of thinking. And then the, the next five questions are geared toward how often is your sympathetic nervous system getting activated, that's your fight or flight response. And we are getting our fight or flight response activated on a daily basis, but some of us are able to soothe that experience quicker and more effectively than others. So you might see one person goes through an experience and they are really um, off guard and they're having a really hard time and someone else can go through that same experience. And they just roll with it and, and move forward. Section of questions, I can really get an idea of how often they're, how difficult of a time are they having soothing those responses. And the last set of questions it has to do with what I call the heart. And that has to do with your sense of community and how much community and support do you have in your life. Uh, maybe a spiritual practice, do you have a spiritual practice or lack thereof? And also trauma can show up there. And so then I can have a good idea and let them know how I can help them using mindfulness to help them heal through some of those experiences. But yeah, I don't know if you 
want me to go through the questions or? Yeah, let's take the quiz live and we can talk about our answers. That'd be fun. Um, okay, all right. Yeah. They are statements. And then what I ask you to do is to rate the statements on how much you agree with them. A five meaning you completely agree with the statement and then a one meaning you don't agree. So the first one is, I regularly take breaks to soak in the experience of the moment. I think my answer was a four on this when I took it with you. And we came to that because I know when I walk outside, I'm intentional about putting my phone away, at least trying. And I always tell my wife when we go on walks, we have to experience the nature, but I don't do it all the time. So that's uh, how I came to a four. How about you, Joe? I put a five. I feel like I regularly take breaks. I often will just get up off my desk and go walk around. There's a greenway real close here at work. Awesome. Wonderful. Excellent. Yeah, that's huge. That can really break up a lot of stress. The next one is I rarely imagine how situations will play out. So I remember for me, I put a one on this because I always I imagine. put a one too. <laughs> <laughs> and, and for me, I'm catastrophic thinking. It's always worst case scenario. It's never like the best case. It's never had. It's always doom and gloom end of the world. So for me, it's not really stemmed in worry as, as much as I approach it like problem solving. I like to think about how stuff is going to play out before I take action. Yeah. So the idea is that, so in life, we have to plan, right? We have jobs. We have to plan. But there can be some balance. I think some people don't realize how much of our the aspects of our lives we can actually move more into a flow kind of energy with that. And so I teach my clients to open up to insights more. And that means quieting your mind and opening up to just um, spontaneous answers. And so you might not want to use that process when you are putting together a proposal for the boss or something like that, but times in life where you can use that option to just kind of quiet your mind and, and be open. And it's a little bit st less stressful. So and it, it has to do with mental rest. A lot of my clients, they aren't experiencing much mental rest and that leads to work burnout. So we use some techniques to reverse that. Yeah. So you, have to, you, can, you might need to be careful of, of doing all that planning, projecting. The next statement is, I rarely experience repetitive or persistent thoughts. Yeah, that's, I always experience persistent <laughs> thoughts that are very repetitive all the time, all day, all, all the time. You got another one? Yep, yep, another one there. It drives my wife's nuts, all, all the cyclical comments, and she'll have to hear everything three or four times. I don't even notice I'm doing it. This isn't my thing. Occasionally I'll experience this. It's usually like maybe once a month I have a hard time falling asleep because I'm trapped in some kind of loop, but it's very rare. So I put a five. Yeah. I feel like an a, a anxious chihuahua as, as we go through this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's another example. Someone does that a lot, that there are techniques to reverse that. So you have a little bit more openness and time to just um, be in the moment. And the next one is, I'm comfortable alone with my thoughts for 30 minutes or longer. So that's if you're waiting in line and you don't have your phone and you just basically have to stand somewhere for 30 minutes. And I think what I was saying is if I've got a project or something to work on, I'm cool with it. But, and the other thing that's a huge differentiator for me is my, my relationships. So if I'm in really secure relationships, like right now I'm married, we got a kid on the way and it's the last relationship I'll ever have to be in. So everything's golden and I'm a lot more comfortable. But after my divorce, I really struggled with it. But now I'm much better with it. I can't recall the first go around what number I settled on here. Probably in the middle, I guess, a three. Yeah. 
Gotcha. I actually prefer being alone with my thoughts rather than, <laughs> I'd like it more than reading or playing on my phone. I would just rather sit and stare at something. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's You're comfortable with that, that quietness. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. We just got to take a little vacation and I feel like that's all I did for the last four days. I just laid in a hammock. That was it. <laughs> yeah. The next one, when a difficult emotion surfaces, I'm usually more curious than action oriented. So this is high level mindfulness practice, right? Because typically when something difficult comes up for us, feeling some emotional pain or some anger, we usually often are in action mode. What can I do to fix, solve this situation? But mindfulness is more about leaning into that and sitting with it and noticing how that emotion feels in our body, for example. I think I'm a fixer. I like to take action right away, which isn't always the best response. So I put like a two or three. What did I put? We just guessed this. Two or three? Three. 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 No, that's probably fair. I also put a three on this one, and I think it, it greatly depends. If it's something that happens to me, I tend to get curious more than action. If it's something that happens to somebody that I know or care about, I tend to go right to action. So yeah. I think I got some work to do here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah, so that would be an opportunity for empathy, right? Without the action, just kind of leaning in and, and running and yeah. empathizing with them. Yeah. Now, I think it'd be cool. Let's do the section by section since that was the end of the first of three sections. Let's reiterate what were those block of five questions about, what our scores were and what they mean. This section has to do with mental processing, our thought cycles, and... Joe, you got a 19 and the cutoff score that I usually use is 18. 18 and higher means you're in a good place. So mindfulness can always move you up a little bit, but you are in a good place. And Brandon, you got the left more challenging for you. So if someone gets a low score here, there's exercises that help people identify their thought cycles. They can identify, I'm in rumination right now. I'm in worry right now. I'm in cognitive elaboration right now. So it's an education on understanding what those different thought cycles are and then using mindfulness to notice you're in the thought cycle. And then the next step in this particular exercise is to name it. And so you name it, for example, rumination. And when you name it, you accept that you're in that thought cycle. You don't want to just push it down in a way. You accept that it's happening, but at the same time, you experience it more separate from you. It's something that's just happening in your midst uh, and it's something that you can observe. This is such a cool tool for, uh, to work with somebody like you because there were there were three main sections and different things. I was okay in two of them and really poor in one. So that lets you zero in on what can get me uh, a little bit better. We, we have a similar quiz on the website, the health evaluation tool which kind of helps people say, where are you going to get the, the most bang for your buck? So this is great. That way, when you are working with people, you know exactly what to zero in on. So I think it's really cool. Yeah, it doesn't take long at all. We just do the assessment in about 15 minutes and I can really get a great gauge on how I can help them. Yeah. All right, let's take a look at section two. Okay. So the statement is, I almost always look forward to change. I think change is my jam. I put five. You put a five? Yeah. Uh, I think I was higher on this. Was I four or five here? Four. Four. I, I get bored easily, so change is good for me. Even if it's just changing the environment or the room I'm in, just anything to break monotony, I, I really like. Yeah. And some people are quite the opposite. Some 
people, the change uh, actually puts them into fight or flight. And so there are exercises that help soothe that to help them through the change. Uh, the next statement is, I am comfortable with not being in control of my emotions. See, I, I think I was really low here because I'm not comfortable with not being in control of my emotions. So I think what we discussed was uh, I'm very hesitant to do anything that would alter that ability, including excessive alcohol use or drugs of any kind. It's terrifying to me to not be in control. So I'm a pretty low score there. I have to score myself low there. I put a two. I think part of it's just, I, it, I think it's part of where I grew up, like in Midwestern, like we don't want to experience our feelings. We want to swallow them and eat them and never talk about them again. Yeah. So there are many things that can put us into fight or flight. And the three categories that put us into fight or flight are either a threat to your physical survival or a threat to your emotional survival. So if we feel like our emotional stability is threatened in some way that can put us into fight or flight and then the third category is a threat to your reputation so the way people perceive you uh, to feel a threat to that can put you into fight or flight you brought that up a couple of times fight or flight i'm curious is there a dominant thing for people like is somebody either fight or are they flight or is it depending on the situation you know a lot of people go into freeze uh freeze mode where they just can't do anything but honestly it doesn't really matter which one you're apt to do. It's what really matters is just using a tool to suit yourself because you want to retrain your sympathetic nervous system. You just want to train it to say, you know what, in this moment right now, you're okay. And the more times you do that, you eventually won't get triggered. Yeah. So if you're driving in traffic and you honk the horn and stick your middle finger out the window, that would be fight, right? <laughs> I would think so. <laughs> that would be a fun game we could play on the show. Is this fight always, or is this flight? The first thing I always think about when I think about fight versus flight is fight is if you've ever seen those AFV videos where people are like dressed up as a scary person to like hold the bowl and oh, then somebody just punches them in the face when they <laughs> scare them. I'm like, that's what, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah, that's I take fight. A fight. Yeah. And flight is when they run around crying, run away crying. Yeah. And there's, one now fawning fawning is when you go into fight or flight and the way you deal with it is by appeasing somebody oh oh like kind of like codependency maybe kind of along those lines yeah yeah kind of interesting hey fire with a nation has this ever happened to you you go online to find a quick recipe for mashed potatoes but first you have to hear about grandfather's farm in 1929 when i was a boy <laughs> The first time you had a potato, and like six and a half chapters later, you get to the ingredient list. Tasted like dirt. Drives me nuts. So me and Joe have worked to solve that issue for you. If you head to firewithinnf.com and check out the recipe section, healthy recipes, following the Fire Within way. And it's just the recipe, no blog. You're welcome. You'll find recipes like steak chimichurri. There's a bananas foster smoothie recipe. There's a sourdough French toast. Lots of healthy things. Make your own ranch dip and, and tons more. So head to firewithinnf.com. Check out the recipe section and enjoy. Have you ever felt like you were just throwing weights around like an idiot at the gym, hoping to see some results? Or after weeks or months of working out, notice that the scale just isn't moving? You wouldn't cook without a recipe. So why would you train or start a weight loss program like the Swedish chef randomly throwing ingredients into a pot? You need a sustainable plan that's science-based and attainable. Fire Within has worked with thousands of clients and helped them reach their goals. So visit firewithinnf.com today. 
Get yourself the free ebook. Read the testimonials and choose a service that works for you. Choose from services like one-on-one nutrition coaching, one-on-one personal training, and more. Again, that's firewithinnf.com. So next statement, I respond calmly and effectively during crisis. Let's see. I think it depends. I think most of the time I do. I, I think I was a three or a four there. What did yeah, I have done. For four? Three. Or three? Yeah, yeah. That sounds about right. I put a five in this one. When I find myself in a crisis mode, if it's like somebody got hurt or something, I'm usually the calm one that's like, all right, here's what we're going to do. Yeah. We're going to do these couple things and we're, you get the car and you do this. <laughs> I can Are see you that. an advanced mindfulness practitioner, Joe? <laughs> <laughs> well, you have focused on it quite a bit the last two years. No, I don't think I would have scored this high five or six years ago. Yeah, yeah your scores are unusually high. So <laughs> I can tell you're, you're working on it. And I know uh, it well enough. I know these are legit. <laughs> All right. Next statement. I trust more than worry about mine and other people's health issues. So that's just thinking, am I the kind of person that when I get a diagnosis or someone in my family gets a diagnosis, does that really freak me out? Does that get my head spinning? Or am I just going to trust that this is going to work out? We've got the doctors and so forth. I remember scoring higher on this because in my profession, I realized that I can't make anybody do anything. So if they're not willing to put in the effort and make the change, it's not, it's out of my control. So I've learned to let go of worry for the most part. So I think I was a four or a five here. Yeah, four. I originally put a higher score and now I'm second guessing it because I'm like, what if it was my kids? So I, th- I think I'm probably a, th- a three because I freak out if they get sick or have a health diagnosis there. Yeah. You know what? When Molly was sick, I was torn to pieces, my dog. And I think I remember talking to you, uh, Sarah, saying if it was an immediate family member, like wife, kid, or and then that's different. But anybody else I, I'm, I'm okay with. But Molly, I, I spiraled. I love that dog. Yeah, yeah, it pulls at our heartstrings for sure. Yeah, maybe it's worse because he's completely defenseless and dependent on me. I don't know. Uh, But I guess babies will be like that. I got one coming September 8th. (laughs) Congratulations. Thank you. I did all the the work. Just kidding. (laughs) The next statement is I easily adjust during transitions such as moving or a new job. I feel like I do. I, I like change. It's fun. I like meeting new people. I think I was a four or five there. Yeah, that stuff doesn't stress me out either. I put a five. Okay. All right. So this has to do with our sympathetic nervous system and how, uh, when it gets activated, how um, skilled are we at deactivating it and soothing ourselves so we are not in fight or flight for an extended period of time that we just get triggered and then we soothe ourselves. Got it. Joe, you got a 20. So like I said, 18 or higher is a, looking good. And Brandon, you got a 17, which is... Uh, just a little bit under that 18 point cutoff, but still fairly high. And the this is a, a serious category because this is the category that affects your physical health the most. Yeah. There are lots of research coming out how the way we deal with our fight or flight responses affects our cardiovascular health. Because when we go into fight or flight, there is so much that goes on in our physical body, you know, our, our, our um, arteries, our veins, they're all um, constricting and uh, dilating and our heart is beating faster and our um, pupils are dilating. There's 
all these physical changes and the research is showing that this does lead to to cardiovascular problems over time. Yeah. Uh, so if someone will score here, it's really imperative that they learn some mindfulness techniques to reverse this. That's a big part of why I did such a deep dive on it myself is because I have hereditary high blood pressure. It just flagged me as this is something I needed to take very seriously. And I think that came up in one of the very first books I read on mindfulness. And then I was like, oh, maybe this is really good for a longevity thing for me is to figure some of this stuff out. Yeah. I know Dr. Barbara Fredrickson, uh, who's a positivity psychologist that's referenced in a lot of books. She's at UNC Chapel Hill or was, but she had some pretty uh, interesting studies on the effects of blood pressure, even just putting images on a screen that were stressful and then measuring cardiovascular, what is the pressure on the arteries and all kinds of stuff. It was amazing, but it really makes a difference. And when I think about people in my life that have died of heart attacks and strokes, and I try and think what is their typical demeanor? Are they usually stressed? How much news do they watch and things like that? that, but there's a hundred percent of correlation there. And we know that we have differences in norepinephrine and adrenaline based on those responses too, which can break down lean muscle tissue, cause cardiovascular things, increase blood pressure and things of that nature. It might be uh, kind of cool to mention some of the other things that help with that fight or flight response. Deep breathing, of course. We've talked about on this show, contrast therapy, going from hot to cold can shut down that, that system as well. And it might be good to define mindfulness because Sometimes people have a certain idea of what mindfulness is, and it's not always correct. So mindfulness practice, the sitting practice part of mindfulness where you're um, meditating, that consists of two different techniques. One is single point of focus where you're actually zoning in on a sound or physical sensation in your body, your breath, which is a combination of sound and physical sensations, or sometimes with your eyes open, looking at an object and focusing on that. And then the other type of sitting practice mindfulness technique is open awareness where you're just sitting and noticing whatever comes into your consciousness, whether that's a thought or an emotion or a sound or a physical sensation. So that's a sitting practice. And that mindfulness also can be just something that we do during the day. And that usually involves leaning into your emotions, being curious about your emotions, noticing how they affect your body and that awareness of your thought cycles that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, absolutely. All right, ready for the last section? This is what I call the heart, and this has to do with our community support or lack thereof, our spiritual practice or lack thereof. It also can indicate some uh, past trauma. Okay. First statement is, I'm usually content when I do not know what will, what will happen next. You want to go first, Joe? Yeah, I put a five. That's like my favorite is to not know what's coming next. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I like to vacation that way. I, I basically like life to happen that way. Spontaneity. I think I would, if I remember right, I think I put a four down. Does that sound right? You did. All right. That's right, Brand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Next statement. I sometimes experience intense positive emotions such as joy or gratitude. Yeah, I definitely experienced that with my dog. So I think I had a, a four there as well. That's right. Yes, I also, I put a five here as well. Just being grateful for my life, my family. So people who have past trauma that haven't gone through a healing process with that will usually score pretty low on these last two statements that I mentioned, often because they want to know what will come next and they want to be able to have some influence and effect over the situations to avoid further trauma. Mm. So... The, the healing, the trauma work that we do with the mindfulness can help people 
feel more content in situations where they don't know what can come next to embrace uncertainty. Do you feel like when people experience trauma, it can sometimes just rob them of that, that joy or gratitude because they are stuck in that pattern? Yeah. Yeah. I think that there is a lot of um, emphasis um, in within the emotional, psychological nervous system about protection mm-hmm. and to lean into that joy and gratitude. Yeah. It's like, it's like a, maybe also like protecting themselves. They, they subdue those emotions because they don't want to feel that crash if something goes wrong, maybe. Yeah. I know for myself, I have used my mindfulness to notice my emotion of joy. And so I'll sometimes have an emotion of joy come up and then I'll notice my system suppressing that emotion of joy and I lean into it and I realize that the reason that I'm suppressing it is because I'm afraid of what might be uncomfortable when the joy goes away. It's, oh yeah, joy's here, it's going to go away and then I'm going to be sad, but that doesn't necessarily need to happen. Sometimes the joy just comes and it goes and we're not sad afterwards, it just comes and it goes. All right, so next statement, I feel protected almost all of the time. I put a five here. I don't know if it's white privilege or just like I do. I feel pretty protected and blessed and all the good stuff. I have a very deep faith in God. And I think a lot of it comes from that. I just feel like there's just a, it's going to work out in the way that it works out. And that doesn't mean that it's going to be good or bad, but it's, it is what it is. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I remember scoring a little bit lower in this one, maybe like a two. What did I have down there? Yeah, we had a one. A one? Yeah. Yeah, I worry a lot. Every time I drive, I worry about being pulled over. I have this deep fear of getting a speeding ticket. And I think it's just from my childhood, my dad getting so upset when my mom would get them. And I've had three. <laughs> um, but you know, so anytime I drive, if something remotely looks like a police car, I know I'm fearful. I've never had like police brutality or anything like that. But so I worry about that. I worry about finances. Finances is a huge worry. Like I'm, I very rarely feel financially secure. And I'm sure that's a lot of people, but so that's why I put a lower score on that. Yeah. I've noticed people who dedicate themselves to a nice mindfulness practice will see this aspect of their life improve these feelings of being protected. Mindfulness is a spiritual practice. That's what spiritual practices do. They help us feel more embracing that uncertainty and feeling trust, trusting. The next statement is, I have high hopes for myself despite my life's challenges. I think for the most part, I feel like I can op- overcome most things. I, I would, I think I would have put a four there. I put a five here again. I'm really optimistic about stuff. Most anything could be worked through if you don't give up. Yeah. And the last statement is, I feel at ease when I am in situations where I have little influence. I think so. I think about four or five there. Is that remotely what I put? Yeah. Yeah. You put a four. Cool. All right. So it wasn't just, uh, at least I'm consistent. So you've <laughs> <laughs> scored the same today and yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. But I put a five in this one too. I actually prefer situations where I have less influence. I don't really like to be in charge. Okay. So Joe, you got a 25, which is swept it. You were feeling good. You got all your spiritual practices going. You got your community linked up, supporting you. You've got supportive yeah. relationships. Uh, I did just get back from the Bahamas. <laughs> yeah, ask me in three weeks. See where we're at. <laughs> vacation. I'm yeah. like a vacation skewing my score. Yeah. Yeah, it's that's great. And then Brandon, you got a seventeen, which is 
a fairly high score too, usually eight teams cut up. So mindfulness could help you a little bit in this category, I would say, just bringing you up a couple notches. Yeah, so I think my biggest takeaway is that some of those cyclical thoughts and things are probably where I need to spend the most time yeah. um, focused on. Like you said earlier, I love this approach because it lets you know exactly what to work on. And then when you're working with a professional, you get the benefit of all their experience and you get to the root of it a lot faster than just... Because I think many people would probably walk in to a mindfulness teacher and really have very little understanding about what's to come in. And, and I think... I think I'll even put myself in that category, having never worked with one. You have a podcast called The Aware Mind that looks that looks really good, and I was scrolling through the episode titles, and one kind of towards the beginning of when you started was le- learning mindfulness from meditation apps versus a meditation teacher, and I was like, oh, I wonder what that's about, because I've basically learned it from apps and books and never sat with somebody as a mentor or a teacher, and I'm just wondering, what is that? What is that? Can you give me like the quick breakdown? What's the difference? So basically, so I teach a class and when I teach my courses, my classes, I'm teaching people how to have a sitting practice. When I do my coaching, for the most part, those people aren't interested in necessarily having a sitting practice. I teach them five minute mindfulness exercises that they do at certain times when things come up. So the idea mm-hmm. is doing the right exercise at the right time. You really see these shifts and you know what uh, Brandon was talking about. You see that would really help him with just noticing those thought cycles and in reversing that. But as far as versus a teacher, so in my classes, basically what I'm doing is I'm getting people off the apps. <laughs> I'm just going to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> the apps are great because they're accessible, they're easy, people just can can get into the practice really quickly. But they only take you so far. And this is the feedback that I get from my students is like, "Wow, like I, I'm meditating on my own now without any guidance." And my meditation practice is like completely transformed. I'm having a completely different experience. So that's part of it is working with a teacher versus the apps is you're just, your experience is just going to be so much deeper. You just can't get to that depth with an app. And then the other reason that I believe working with a teacher is so much better than an app is because there's so much stuff that can come up, right? You can have lots of frustration about concentration come up. You can have past trauma come up. And if you're working with an app, like you're not going to get that support to move you through those difficult experiences. And a lot of times what's going to happen is people are going to turn away and get turned off. But if you're working with a teacher who's qualified, you know, they'll be able to really support you through those experiences. I spend a lot of time with my students on concentration techniques because that can be one of the biggest hurdles for people in, in maintaining that dedicated practice. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. When you were talking about the two sitting type of practices, single pointed focus, like focusing on your breath or that seems to be like all the apps do. And then the other one that you mentioned, I was like, oh, I know so little about open awareness and just noticing your thoughts because I guess an app would stink at that. Notice your thoughts. Wait, now I'm going to talk about this, but notice what you're thinking. But now listen to me because I'm going to say something else. Yeah. yeah, it is. It is hard to guide someone through that because you don't know what is coming up in their consciousness. Yeah. Uh, and I, personally, I, I learn so much better from a live human being. I like For to be sure. able to ask questions. Uh, I like they can read body language and environment and maybe better at suggestions and things like that. And I just, we talk about it in, I'm in a networking group called Business Networking International, BNI. We talk about all the time the difference in value between those in-person conversations versus through a camera on Zoom. It's not the same. And for something like awareness, taking technology out of the way, I think is really important. 
uh, God forbid you're on your meditation app and you get a text from work. <laughs> it's like, how helpful is that? <laughs> That's um, happened to me before. Yeah. <laughs> takes you right out of it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, learned, I, I learned meditation before even YouTube was out. YouTube came out in 2005. Oh, wow. Meditation training in 1999. So for me, I'm like, what? Like, yeah. <laughs> look, to, go to, to a teacher is hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we mentioned earlier about how social media is a distraction, and that comes from the device that we're holding. So, it's, yeah, we're going to solve this with the device that we're holding. Is this, is this the, does that make a lot of it's sense? It's like Beyond Impossible episode we just released where we're talking about the processed foods got us all into this obesity epidemic, so let's fix it with more processed food. Yeah, it does seem like it's yeah. a little strange. Yeah. Actually, a well-known app that um, dealt with that issue, they had meditation streaks, so they were trying to get their people on their apps to keep up with these streaks to meditating every day. And mm -hmm. they actually took that out for that very reason. Are these meditation streaks on this app actually making me have more of an attachment to my phone and to my app? Yeah. It's interesting. Wow. Yeah. Oh, well, this was awesome. I appreciate you taking us through that. And that gives our listeners uh, kind of an idea of the value of what you do, because this is your assessment that you created. So if somebody wanted to get in contact with you to learn more, work with you, any of that. Or um, take the assessment. Or take the assessment. How would they get in contact with you? Yeah. So they can go to my website, which is my name, sarahvalley.com, S-A-R-A-H-V-A-L-E-L-Y.com. And you can actually take this assessment right on my homepage. It's, if you scroll down to the bottom of the page, you can take it. And I will um, go over those results for you at no charge, either on the phone or through email. And if you're interested in it, Courses, that's another website, T as in Tame, S as in Sue, D as in Dwell, Mind as in Mindfulness.org. Awesome. Make sure to check out the podcast, The Aware Mind. Really good information. Uh, I got to check out a couple episodes. Fascinating. You're very well spoken, very well researched, very data oriented. Um, and I think people uh, can get a lot from you and your co host on that show as well. Is there anything else you'd like to plug or mention? Yeah, I mean, just overall, basically, the idea is there's, we're all having stressful things happen on our life. And we have this psychological, emotional, and physical nervous system that can sometimes make it worse. And so that's where I come in. I help clients identify what is it in their own system that's making their stress worse, that's intensifying their stress, and then giving exercises and education about how to undo that. Awesome. Oh, this has been hugely helpful. Even just taking the assessment, I feel like I walked away with great information, even better information than some therapy sessions I've went to. Yeah, me too, for sure. I think I've seen a lot of mindfulness coaches and it feels like they just tell you what worked for them. And it feels like your approach is trying to find out what will work for your client, which is really refreshing and very cool. And I really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. I would strongly encourage any of my listeners to, to take the assessment, reach out to her. If you have an opportunity to work with her, I can't uh, put a price on the value of not having cyclical worrying thoughts that obviously are going to impact relationships and all kinds of other things. And that'll free up space for creativity and growth and all kinds of stuff. So definitely check her out and check out her podcast. And thank you so much for being a guest today. Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you got a lot of value out of today's episode. If you did, Go check us out at firewithinnf.com and sign up for Refuel, a weekly email with recipes, videos, and tips to stoke the fire within. 
Also, you can join the Fire Within community by being added to our Facebook group. And don't forget to follow us on social media.